So today I'm focusing on Shakespeare's history play, Richard II. That's a play generally dated to 1595, first published in 1597. So it has as near chronological neighbours, Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream, and shares quite a lot of linguistic features with both those plays. But obviously it also introduces a new sequence of English history plays, which is going to continue with the two parts of Henry IV and then Henry V. And it shares an interest in regicide and regime change with later plays, which might include Julius Caesar and Macbeth. So what I want to try and talk about in today's lecture is the politics and the dramaturgy of Richard II under the heading, was it right for Bolingbroke to take the throne from Richard? Was it right for Bolingbroke to take the throne from Richard? So, as usual, let's back up and contextualise that critical question within the plot of the play. Richard II begins with a confusing scene uh, a near duel between two noblemen, Bolingbroke, the Duke of Hereford, and Thomas Mowbray, the Duke of Norfolk. They're each accusing the other of killing the Duke of Gloucester. Richard intervenes to postpone the combat between the two noblemen, uh, but there's clearly something odd going on, and it's only later in the play that we get to know that Richard himself, the king, is implicated in the death of the Duke of Gloucester. Bolingbroke and Mowbray return to take up their quarrel again and Richard again defers the combat, banishing them instead for ten years for Bolingbroke, which he later reduces to six, and life for Mowbray. Bolingbroke's father, John of Gaunt, expresses while he's dying his eloquent disappointment in the king's lavish behaviour and prophesies the decline of England. But Richard is unrepentant and he takes away Gaunt's estate on Gaunt's death in order to pay for a military expedition to Ireland. <coughs> on the death of his father, Bolingbroke returns to England with an army attempting to recover his inheritance. And when Richard returns from Ireland, troops, uh, including some of his former um, supporters, are defecting to Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke, though, agrees to surrender if he's reinstated to his property. But Bolingbroke's power grows. He has Richard's former advisers executed, uh, and he arrests uh, other noblemen on the charge of murdering the Duke of Gloucester. Richard's queen hears two gardeners talking about the inevitability that Richard will be overthrown. Richard agrees to abdicate in favour of Bolingbroke and he publicly hands over the crown to him in Parliament. Bolingbroke announces his own coronation, much to the disgust of the Bishop of Carlisle, who speaks passionately about the divine right of kings. Richard says goodbye to his queen. He's taken into captivity. There's a small counter-conspiracy against Bolingbroke, but this is discovered uh, and Bolingbroke uh, dis actually decides to forgive uh, the conspirators. Richard is in prison where Piers Exton comes to visit him. Uh, Exton believes he has Bolingbroke's mandate for doing this and kills Richard, although Richard defends himself bravely. Exton bears Richard's body to Bolingbroke, 
now Henry IV, who denies that he ever wanted Richard to be killed. He banishes Exton and vows a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to wash away his guilt. Okay, so it's essentially a play uh, about the way in which Bolingbroke takes over, takes the throne from Richard. The play gives us the depiction of the transfer of power between Richard II and Henry Bolingbroke, who then becomes Henry IV. Henry takes up the throne before Richard is dead, but his predecessor's death confirms his succession. So where should our sympathies, emotional, rational, dramatic, political, where should they lie in this story? I want to start quite closely within the play, and then I'm going to move out uh, to some of the context we might want to put round it. I'm going to start with two metaphors the play itself uses for the transfer of power it depicts. The first comes from Richard. Richard uses a wide range of emotive language to describe the events of the play from his own perspective, particularly a kind of Christological symbolism where he is the betrayed Christ, uh, Bolingbroke is a Judas, uh, and the noblemen who do nothing to stop him are uh, the, uh, uh, the disciples who stand by. So in such moments, the figurative language Richard uses to describe what's happening makes it quite clear that Richard himself believes Bolingbroke's actions to be a sinful betrayal. But, as Mandy Rice Davis famously said in only a slightly different context, he would, wouldn't he? The image I want to discuss, however, sees Richard in more material and less metaphysical mode. He and Bolingbroke both hold the crown at the moment of the transfer of that prop in Act 4, Scene 1. And Richard's image is of a well. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down, unseen and full of water. That bucket down, unseen and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. So now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down, unseen and full of water. That bucket down, unseen and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. So two things seem to me potentially interesting about Richard's simile here. One is the way in which its spatial dynamic, the rise and fall of the buckets in the well, recalls a medieval theory of tragedy sometimes known as the De Casibus tragedy. De Casibus tragedy. You might be familiar, to this, uh, familiar with this as a, uh, a Chaucerian kind of idea, De Casibus. So De Casibus tragedy depicts the downfall of noble or high-born individuals. Describing tragedy in his Art of English Poesy in 1589, George Putnam has it as the doleful falls of infortunate and afflicted princes. The doleful falls of infortunate and afflicted princes. So that's from Putnam, writing in 1589. And that's a description of De Casibus tragedy, the downfall of noble uh, individuals. Richard visualises his tragedy then in terms which are analogous to the idea of the wheel of fortune. One figure rises while the other falls. Now, when it was first published in 1597, and in fact in all its quarto editions before the folio of 1623, the play was titled The Tragedy of King Richard II. How might our reading it as a tragedy 
de casibus or otherwise, affect the question of how we read Bolingbroke's actions. So the question of genre, I think, is an interesting one. In some ways, we can read the structure of Richard II as endorsing Richard's own claims to the central dramatic interest afforded to the titular character in tragedy. Okay, so that central dramatic interest, not really moral pole position. This is someone at the centre of the play rather than uh, someone who has a particular moral character. Richard III, for example, was also called a tragedy uh, in its first publications. So as in King Lear or Coriolanus or Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet, it is the name of the title character that brings the play to a close. Richard's life and the span of the play are equivalent terms. Shakespeare's shaping of the historical material here is all the more striking, given that obviously there's lots more of the story still to come. History does not come to an end, unlike tragedy. At the end of a tragedy, we don't really feel any interest in what comes next. And in fact, it could almost be said that the idea of the future is one of the most significant casualties among the body count at the end of a tragedy. When Fortinbras comes in at the end of Hamlet, or when Edgar or Albany try to say something trite at the end of King Lear, we know that they're just temporising. The focus has gone from the tragic world. We are not interested or convinced that there is any future beyond the end of the play. Tragedy is therefore apocalyptic or eschatological. It tells, it tells us something about the end of the world, the promised end, as the final lines of King Lear puts it. Now, to some extent, Richard II shares this structure, and it's interesting to think structurally about the figure of Bolingbroke compared with, say, the figure of Fortinbras. Is Bolingbroke, like Fortinbras, merely the kind of external nemesis of the tragic character, not really uh, a particular agent, but almost a scapegoat for internal or societal fissures which make uh, the tragic hero's demise inevitable. So, as well as that, the way in which the play engages with the genre of history, there's another aspect to the play, obviously. It's engagement with the ongoing processes uh, of, of history. Uh, so, it, it, it's thinking about uh, a tragic form and a historical form at the same time. The thing about history is it continues. The death of one king inevitably means the coronation of another. The king is dead. Long live the king. Part of the myth of monarchical sanctity, what Ernst Kantarowicz memorably dubbed the king's two bodies, the idea that the king has both a physical body which is susceptible to age and uh, decline like every other person, but also uh, a, a kind of political body which never changes. Okay, so the king's body continues across time, even where individual physical occupants of that will decline uh, and fade away. What, so what, what Kantarowicz calls the king's two bodies means that the death of a king is never the end. The death of the great man is not a tragedy in this schema. It's just the necessary and inevitable re renewal of the, of the role of monarch. So monarchy, like history itself, is opposed to tragedy by opposing the finite, end-stopped idea of tragedy. Those buckets, to go back to Richard's image, keep moving. Richard's is implicitly an image of historical process, not of tragic finality. The bucket that's down goes up again, 
and vice versa. Now, when Richard II comes to be published in the folio text, that edition of collected Shakespeare plays invents the genre of history. It includes it uh, as one of three genres it's showcasing uh, from Shakespeare's works, comedies, histories, and tragedies. And it invents history as a genre entirely to do with England. Okay, so the history play genre in the first folio catalogue includes only English history plays. And it also puts the plays in order of chronological history rather than, say, in order of their composition. So we know, for example, that Shakespeare writes uh, the Henry VI plays before he writes the Henry IV plays. Its title in that order, in the first folio catalogue, is quite different. The Life and Death of Richard II. The Life and Death of Richard II, as opposed to the tragedy of King Richard II. Historical sequence, that's to say, does not have room for individual tragedy. And therefore, one way of answering the question about Bolingbroke's actions is generic. We might answer it differently if we read the play as a tragedy from the way we would answer it if we were reading it in the sequence of historical plays in the first folio. Now, what's striking about Richard's metaphor is that the buckets can't really take any responsibility for their respective positions or for their movement. They're inanimate objects dependent on some external impetus to move. It would be unreasonable, not to say surreal, for one bucket to blame the other for the change in their positions. Related to this is that the simile of the well buckets makes no moral distinction between the two figures, between the two kings. Neither is better at the job, neither is more uh, suited to be a bucket. There's an arbitrariness about which one is up and which one is down, perhaps related to a feeling that Richard could have used this simile in the opposite way, that he is dancing in the air, relieved of his duties, while Bolingbroke is down, weighed with the cares of office. In this respect, there's a radical arbitrariness about the play's answer to the question of Bolingbroke's conduct in taking the throne. When the director John Barton produced the play for the RSC in 1974, he had two actors, Ian Richardson and Richard Pascoe, alternating the two roles of Richard and Bolingbroke, alternating those two roles. Barton's, Barton had wanted each night's casting to be random, determined by the role of a die on stage at the beginning of the performance, but box office logistics meant this wasn't possible, uh, they, they, they had to say in advance who was going to be playing which role. Uh, but he kept the idea of the die at the beginning of the performance uh, as if it allocated which actor would play which role that night. As in a more recent incidence of this swapped casting, Danny Boyle's stage version of Frankenstein in 2010, where Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller alternate the roles of monster and creator, Barton's direction of Richard II in this way suggested the similarities between Richard and his antagonist, rather than seeing them, as has, had been traditional, as complete opposites. So the view of Richard and Bolingbroke as opposites had been used to suggest that the transfer of sovereigns here could be read as a transfer of uh, huge kind of historical epistemes like the, the, the change from feudalism to capitalism or from divine right to pragmatism, all political or personal versions of Hegel's influential view of tragedy as conflict, conflict between two opposing forces. 
By contrast, Barton's production suggested that far from representing two opposing worldviews, the two men at the heart of this play are cousins, placed in arbitrary but different positions and therefore subject to historical process in different ways. That example from the theatre related to the image of the two buckets can help us move to another simile the play uses to describe the transfer of power. The Duke of York, whose shifting sympathies in this play act as a kind of weather vane for the audience, is describing to his wife the entrance into London of the victorious Bolingbroke and the defeated Richard. Bolingbroke, says York, was greeted with, God save thee, Bolingbroke. You would have thought the very windows spake. So many greedy looks of young and old through casements darted their desiring eyes upon his visage. The Duchess asks her husband about poor Richard. Where rides he the whilst? And York's metaphor is striking. As in a theatre, the eyes of men after a well-graced actor leaves the stage are idly bent on him that enters next, thinking his prattle to be tedious. Even so, or with much more contempt, men's eyes did scowl on Richard. As in a theatre, the eyes of men after a well-graced actor leaves the stage are idly bent on him that follows next thinking his prattle to be tedious. Even so, or with much more contempt, men's eyes did scowl on Richard. Now, that image of the king as an actor is a trope that recurs throughout Shakespeare's history plays and throughout the culture which prompted them. Elizabeth's own much-quoted phrase, we princes, I tell you, are set on stages in the sight and view of all the world duly observed. We princes... I tell you, are set on stages in the sight and view of all the world duly observed, acknowledges the theatricality intrinsic to a spectacular early modern monarchy in an age in which progresses, coronation processions and accession tilts drew on some of the emerging vocabulary of the public stage. But here in York's speech, the image again is an interesting one. The difference between the old and the new kings or more pointedly, between the legitimate king and the usurping one, is not the difference between the true and the copy, the difference between the real monarch and the counterfeit player. Rather, the contrast is between a good, well-graced actor and a tedious one. Both are actors. Both are pretending. Neither can claim authenticity, according to the simile. So what we haven't got here is a... Is a um, a comparison of the real and the copy or the real and the counterfeit. We've got two counterfeits, but one that's good, uh, good at it and one that's less good. Bolingbroke is just better at pretending to be king. He's a better actor. This logic of the theatre, that the audience prefers the better actor and is restless and contemptuous when a lesser performer comes on, is extremely subversive when attached to the issue of monarchy because it replaces the notion of authenticity with facility. It doesn't matter whether you're supposed to be king, what matters is if you're good at it or good at seeming to be it. It overlays the question of who is the rightful king with the one of who is the better king. And the question of who is a better king, of course, is a completely unaskable one in a hereditary monarchy. Even to ask, then, whether Bolingbroke's actions in taking the throne might be justified is therefore a potentially politically challenging question. 
having analysed two of the similes used within the play for that transfer of power, now I want to try and think about it in the broader context of early modern politics. So, as you probably know, behind the history play boom of the 1590s is almost certainly contemporary concerns and cultural anxieties around the Elizabethan succession. That's to say, these are plays about late 16th century politics, not late 14th century ones. Play after play by Shakespeare and others obsesses on moments of transfer, obsesses on the theme of the king challenged by rivals, obsesses on scuffles over the crown. No history play ever depicts the long or settled reign of an established monarch. While Elizabeth had made discussion of the succession a felony, so a crime punishable by death, plays and other texts using historical subjects probed the otherwise unarticulable question of what might happen after her death. Unsurprisingly, we see that once we know what's going to happen after her death, once James I comes to the throne, the interest in history plays uh, evaporates almost immediately. In 1599, the so-called Bishop's Ban attacked two literary genres and made them subject to increased censorship and regulation. Those two genres were satire and history. Each of those, both satire and history, had become a means for commentary, often unflatteringly, on contemporary events. Now, for some critics, the relation of the history plays to their own moment in the 1590s is an essentially conservative one. And in this, they tend to follow uh, a really influential critic, E.M.W. Tilliard. Tilliard's influential vision of the history plays was as a, uh, as, as, as a version of what he called the Tudor myth. And this idea was that Shakespeare wrote his history plays to please Elizabeth as a long, implicit hymn of praise to the settled civil peace ushered in by the Tudors. For Tilliard, the deposition and murder of Richard II that we're talking about today was the act of terrible sin for which the whole of the rest of the historical sequence, up to Richard III's defeat at Bosworth Field by Henry Tudor, was a long and bloody expiation. Okay, so here, his view of it was that in the play we're talking about today, we see the crime. In the next seven plays, we see the consequences of that crime. Uh, and it's only when we get Henry Tudor at the end of Richard III that this, this has been put right. In fact, Tilliard, more or less, is actually in Richard II. His view of events is pretty clearly spoken by the Bishop of Carlisle, who gives the play's most extensive defence of the divine right of kings, as the other nobles stand by, waiting for Richard to be brought to Parliament to abdicate. What subject can give sentence on his king, and who sits here that is not Richard's subject, thunders Carlyle. And he voices a view, uh, view of the king in Act 4, Scene 1, as the figure of God's majesty, his captain, steward, deputy-elect, anointed and crowned, the idea that the king is God's representative and deputy on earth. The bishop goes on to predict that if Richard is deposed, the blood of English shall manure the ground. In this seat of peace, tumultuous wars shall kin with kin and kind with kind confound. 
So he predicts civil war. And of course he's right. As audiences would have already probably recognised, Shakespeare has written those plays on the reign of Henry VI, which dramatise the Wars of the Roses, which in some sense uh, lead, uh, lead on from this action here. But within the play itself, however, there are no such consequences attending the murdering of Richard, partly because of the way the murder of Richard is placed in the structure of the play, so we're back to the idea of tragedy. If we compare Richard II with Julius Caesar for a moment, another play about a deposed ruler, we can see a different structural handling of the same theme. In Julius Caesar, the death of Caesar comes right in the middle of the play, So the beginning of the play is the lead-up to the murder of Caesar, the assassination, and the second half of the play are the consequences. By having the death of Caesar in the middle of that play, Shakespeare can show us the consequences as Caesar's supporters, tipped into action by the persuasive rhetoric of Antony, take back power from the conspirators. So the arc of the play, Julius Caesar, shows us the decision to take power, the taking of power, and the losing of power in return. So it's a, we might see a similar kind of complete movement in Macbeth, say. Uh, Macbeth decides to take the throne, he takes the throne, he has the throne taken from him in return. Um, both those plays dramatise uh, an act and its consequences. In Richard II, we get only the first of those, but not the last. That movement of retribution is not completed. There just isn't time within the play in the way Shakespeare has written it. Henry ends the play confirmed in his throne by Richard's murder, even as he professes that he did not wish his predecessor killed. Although I don't think Shakespeare writes his plays to convey messages, the reminder of film mogul Sam Goldwyn in the early days of Hollywood, if you want to send a message, use Western Union, it's actually quite a good one for the early modern theatre. But even so, we might think that one outcome of Richard II as a standalone play, perhaps at the Curtain Theatre, is you can depose and murder a rightful king and nothing happens, no punishment falls on your head. Tilliard's idea of a broadly conservative cast to the history plays in which Bolingbroke's act is a terrible crime aligns Richard II with orthodox contemporary views about disobedience to the sovereign, and the sovereign in this case would be Elizabeth. The official homily on disobedience and willful rebellion, the homily on disobedience and willful rebellion, which was appointed to be read in Elizabethan churches, described in graphic terms just how bad rebellion and disobedience were. The first rebellion was that of Lucifer in heaven, the second that of Adam and Eve in paradise. The consequences clearly are terrible ones, according to the homily which is at pains to hammer home the message that however bad the sovereign, the subject has no right to rebel. The punishment for any such rebellion will be much, much worse than the original suffering under the bad sovereign. In this framework, we can see that Bolingbroke's acts uh, act as a rebellion against the sovereign have criminal, far-reaching consequences. But of course, we need to bear in mind that the homilies on subjects including drunkenness, idolatry, adultery and excessive apparel tell us as much about what people did do by telling us what they were exhorted not to do. Just as some people probably drank too much, so some people may not have been entirely convinced that rebellion was always such a bad thing. 
But that homily against disobedience and willful rebellion gives us a context in which Bolingbroke's actions are clearly wrong. To rebel against a sovereign is clearly the wrong thing to do. And we might see this reading, the idea that Bolingbroke's behaviour uh, is unjustifiable. We might see that reading supported by some of the choices Shakespeare has made in selecting from the historical sources for the play. He seems, for example, to have diminished the negative role of Richard's parasitic advisers, Bushy, Badgett and Green. We never really see them in this play behaving very badly. He stresses that Richard takes Gaunt's money not for his own lavish expenditure, but for the national coffers to prosecute uh, a war in Ireland, quite a, quite a contemporary and topical view for the 1590s. Shakespeare gives Richard a soliloquy in prison in the play's final scene that creates sympathy for him. He develops an extended, non-historical role for Richard's wife, which also seems to serve to humanise the king. And he chooses not to give any active voice to the common people and their complaints against the social elite. Even the gardener in this play, who might be thought to be a representative of ordinary people, speaks blank verse and sophisticated political theory. The common people in this play, who we never see, are always called subjects, a word which indicates their hierarchical subservience to the monarch, rather than, in Hollinshed's Chronicles, Shakespeare's major source, citizens, uh, a word which Shakespeare uses elsewhere in his history plays. So the word citizen has more sense of active participation in the Commonwealth or, or in the polis. Subject is a much more kind of hierarchical uh, role, and that's the uh, word that Shakespeare chooses to focus on in Richard II. If you want a, a play to compare it to, you might have a look at the contemporary anonymous play Woodstock, sometimes titled Thomas of Woodstock. That's a play about the murder of the Duke of Gloucester, which is the source of the contention with which Shakespeare's play begins. And in this anonymous play, Woodstock, Richard's presentation is much darker. So it's an interesting to think about how Shakespeare uses his source material, and in this case, an alternative and contemporary view of similar events uh, in the play Woodstock, these help us answer the question about Bolingbroke's behaviour in the negative. Shakespeare has deliberately minimised Richard failings, Richard's failings, perhaps, in order to make his deposition less excusable. Okay, so he's built up the case for Richard rather than for Bolingbroke. Tilliard's overall argument about the Tudor myth is, however, a slightly curious one. It's perverse, I think, to see these plays which so insistently dramatise the excitement of regime change as propaganda for settled monarchy. They're just not about that, uh, and it takes an effort to make them uh, refer to that. And it's also odd to believe that when the Tudor dynasty is, is reaching its anxious terminus in the figure of the ageing virgin queen, proclaiming the Tudors as England's sole saviour from civil war is not particularly reassuring. Tilliard is writing in 1945, which perhaps explains his insistence on order and stability emerging from violent chaos. But for readers and viewers of the 1590s, it's not clear that Richard II was only interpreted, as Tilliard does, as the sinful deposition of a rightful king. For one thing, it seems from the publication history of the play that it may have been censored, those speeches in Act 4, including the one about the buckets that I've already discussed, 
the scene in which Richard hands over the crown, orb and scepter to Bolingbroke are not present in any of the texts published during Elizabeth's lifetime. Many critics feel this is due to censorship, showing a lawful king being deposed on stage, perhaps particularly through a quasi-legalistic instrument like Parliament, might have been thought too subversive. So it's a dangerous play which then seems to depict the overthrow of a sovereign. We also know that the historical rivalry between Richard and Bolingbroke comes during the 1590s to have a particular connection with the fortunes of the most prominent Elizabethan nobleman, the Earl of Essex. Essex's role in court as the champion of a more active military engagement in the Protestant cause in Europe means that he's a controversial figure. And after the failure of his military expedition to Ireland in 1599, I talk about this uh, in my lecture on Henry V, because it's part of that play, Shakespeare mentions it in Henry V. After the failure of that expedition to Ireland in 1599, Essex falls from favour. He and his supporters mount a disastrous attempt to persuade Elizabeth to reinstate him, which turns into an ill-fated rebellion against Elizabethan rule. Essex is arrested and executed for treason. But Richard II is on the sidelines of this story. The Lord Chamberlain's men, Shakespeare's company, were paid by Essex's supporters to perform their old play, Richard II, on the eve of Essex's abortive revolt in February 1601. So the play is commissioned to be part of the preparation uh, the ideological preparation, we might say, for uh, Essex's attempt to challenge Elizabeth's authority. Presumably there was some sense that this play about a monarch and his unhelpful advisers might help gather support for Essex's own challenge. Essex kept saying that he was, uh, his, his real uh, target was not the Queen herself, but the terrible advisers around her. After the failure of the rebellion, the Chamberlain's men are called before the Privy Council to account for their part in the affair. Why did they agree to uh, perform a play under the auspices of Essex and his supporters? Their spokesman, Augustine Phillips, claims they merely took a commission to perform an old play. And since they were back at court performing within a month, their participation in this uh, rebellion can't have caused too much concern. But the idea of a play which is co-opted for contemporary political action, however doomed that action might be, has been extremely attractive to historians of early modern drama who have been dissatisfied by Tilliard's idea that plays are conservative and have been keen in, to find instead in the theatre a challenge to orthodox political ideas. This line of argument sees the actions of Bolingbroke as dangerous, endorsed by the play, and radically subversive of contemporary order. But perhaps we can begin to see that as an interpretive position, this is as ideologically constructed as that of Tilliard. Both readings find in the play's politics confirmation of their own politics. We make Shakespeare mean what we want him to mean. So does that mean that Shakespeare doesn't take sides in the question of Bolingbroke's actions? Well, it has certainly been one aspect of Shakespeare's ongoing flexibility to different theatrical and political agendas that his own politics seem always to be so hidden. Richard II does suggest that Bolingbroke may be a better king with a broader base of support, but it never suggests that he is the rightful king. 
And so it places two incompatible frameworks, better and rightful, uh, which structure the whole play. The system of hereditary monarchy does not have any place for a meritocratic consideration of how different candidates would be as king. It can't even allow that as a question. And it may be that it's this interest which is going to lead Shakespeare away from English history and towards Roman history, particularly in Julius Caesar, where the question of what makes a good ruler can be openly uh, debated. But Shakespeare gives us in Richard II a presentation of Richard which seems much more detailed, maybe even more inward, than that of Bolingbroke. We never know, for example, why Bolingbroke, uh, what Bolingbroke has in mind when he returns from France to claim his inheritance, nor when he decides that he's not just going to get his inheritance back, but the whole throne. He never tells us. There are no soliloquies, no private moments, no privileged access to what Bolingbroke is thinking. It's very hard, therefore, in the way Shakespeare has structured the play, to feel close to or sympathetic towards Bolingbroke on stage. All his speeches are practical, controlled and public. Imagined scenes which might have made him more sympathetic, how he takes the news of his father's death, for example, uh, or whether he struggles over uh, the rightfulness of taking the throne. We never get those scenes, so we never see whether there is a kind of inner, inner struggle or, or torment. Richard's stage presence is much more emphatic, much more dramatic than that of his rival. If you got the role of Bolingbroke, if you were cast in the role of Bolingbroke in Richard II, I think you would feel slightly disappointed. The scene of the handover of those props of kingly office in Act 4, Scene 1, for example, sees Richard speak 150 lines to Bolingbroke's 10. If you look at the scene on the page, you'll see long speeches of poetic conceit from Richard, punctuated by phlegmatic reminders from Bolingbroke of the business in hand. Even as Richard is handing over control of his kingdom, that's to say, he does not hand over control of the stage. The moment of his abdication is a dramatic set piece in which he utterly dominates the action. So Richard's characterisation is handled quite differently from that of Bolingbroke. And again, we might try and link this with genre. Richard is in a tragedy in which the suffering of the unique individual is aestheticised through his speech. When he ought to be at his most history play-like, rounding up soldiers and fighting Bolingbroke, Richard collapses instead into tragic self-pity. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. In some ways, Richard's downfall is that he knows too early on he's in a tragedy and there's therefore not very much, chance, very much point trying to do anything about it. Bolingbroke, on the other hand, reveals himself quite differently. Thinking in its broadest sense, Bolingbroke is in a comedy. His star is rising. Things are getting better for him. And as a comic character, he reveals himself in dialogue and company, not in isolation. But that does mean that there is a loss of audience involvement with Bolingbroke and with his cause. So it may be that we're arguing in the end that balance is at the heart of the play's structure. Perhaps we could see Richard II as a kind of animated version of the grammar school debates which were so important for humanist 16th century culture. The technique of arguing in utramque partum, 
in utramque partum, so from either side of a proposition with equal emotive and rhetorical force. The point of that grammar school education was not what you really believed, but how persuasively you could put both sides. This may be a sign of Shakespeare's measured approach to contemporary politics or of a, or of a kind of habitual evasiveness that may find its biographical corollary in the case discussed by Charles Nicholl in his book The Lodger or Shakespeare on Silver Street. Nicholl in this book talks about a, a legal case where Shakespeare is called as a witness uh, to clarify whether his landlord had uh, bestowed a larger dowry uh, on his daughter than was now being claimed. Uh, it, it ought to be a really fascinating insight into Shakespeare, and in fact it, it kind of is, but not in the way you would expect. So Shakespeare is brought forward having, uh, as a witness, having uh, witnessed the uh, agreement with the daughter's husband about the dowry, and he's asked what the dowry is, and Shakespeare says he can't remember, can't remember how much it might have been. Public, political even-handedness may have corresponded to private slipperiness. He seems like a man who will not put his, uh, not, not nail his colours to the mast, will not say, uh, when given a choice between two things, he will not, not plump for either of them. Uh, and that may be something that we're seeing in the plays. Gary Taylor, writing of the possibility that Shakespeare was a closet Catholic, suggests that this characteristic refusal to back one side over another is the consequence of a lifetime of self-censorship, the constant act of ventriloquism which is necessary for so-called church papists who only pretended allegiance to the Church of England. He argues that this is a very Catholic idea, not to say what you believe uh, is, is one of the ways we could identify Shakespeare as a Catholic thinker. You might want to look for other examples of apparent even-handedness in King John, for instance, or in Julius Caesar, or in the trilogy Henry VI, other examples of plays about struggle in which Shakespeare seems not to take sides. Arguing along these lines might suggest that Shakespeare cannot answer the question about the justification of Bolingbroke's actions. Taking the throne is neither right nor wrong, it just is. As often then in these lectures, the question of whether Bolingbroke was right to take the throne from Richard is just that, a question. The play invites us to ask it, and it gives us different frameworks in which to come to a provisional conclusion, but it's always aware of the other side of the argument. And we might end, perhaps, by thinking about a medium, the theatre, in which such careful balance can seem dramatically or ethically unsatisfactory. Uh, what can seem on the page like a fine balance between uh, opposing readings or an a susceptibility to multiple reasons can seem in the theatre confusing or bland or uh, evasive. Reviews, for example, of Stephen Pimlott's RSC production of 2000 speak of a fragile, ironic Richard matched with a thuggish, ambitious Bolingbroke. In 1996, Fiona Shaw played an immature and irresponsible Richard who believed that Bolingbroke's personal loyalty would curb his ambition. Michael Pennington has played a dandified Regency Richard giving way to the sober, buttoned-up Victorianism of Bolingbroke and his followers. Ron Daniels directed Alex Jennings as a tyrannical Richard ruling over a totalitarian state, toppled by a reluctant, intelligent, dissident Bolingbroke played by Anton Lesser. A famous medieval Book of Hours-inspired production had Jeremy Irons as an introspective, poetic king 
who is rather relieved to pass on the world of politics to his cousin. You can read all these reviews and others in John O'Connor and Catherine Goodland's collection uh, of Shakespeare on the modern stage. The point I wanted to make by raising them very briefly is that decisions of casting, setting and direction can and usually do clarify or reshape the play's balance on the stage. The actions of a stage Bolingbroke may therefore be interpreted with more clarity than those on the page uh, and it might be uh, that there are endless provisional answers to whether Bolingbroke is justified by looking at the play uh, in different kinds of performance. The answers to our interpretive questions about Shakespeare can be found, albeit in provisional and contingent form, in the theatre, even when we can't find them, however hard we try, in the play on the stage. So I'm thinking, uh, I guess my conclusion is, I don't think Shakespeare tells us uh, if that's not comfortable for you, you need to look in the theatre where directors do tell us. Uh, so if you want an answer to the question, you can answer it in relation to specific productions, but I don't think you can answer it very easily uh, in relation to the play itself. Next week, I'm going to talk about Antony and Cleopatra, and the question I want to ask then is, whose tragedy is it? Whose tragedy is it? And I think that will give us the chance to continue the discussion of the genre of tragedy and to think about gender reception and doubleness in that play. It would be great to see you then. Thank you.